everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Conversation of Our Generation. My name is Nick Jamel, and I'm the creator of The Conversation of Our Generation, the host of the podcast here. And we have a good uh, episode lined up for you, talking about semantics and why, you know, when people say, oh, that's just semantics, that that's an important thing, and we have to really watch the way language is being used. We'll pull from some lessons of George Orwell um, and Oscar Wilde, and just talk about what's going on in the way people use language in our world today, uh, and how we can kind of defend against the problems that come from it. So before I get too far into it, I'd like to remind you that you can find me on conversationofourgeneration.com is my website. You can go there, you can find other episodes of the podcast, and you can find other blog posts that I've done, reviews of books, all sorts of things. And if you go there, it's a, there's a lot of great content, and I'd love to hear from you on what you have, you know, what would you think about the show, what you think about other pieces of content. So if you just drop a line at conversationforgeneration.com slash contact, I'd love to hear from you. You can also find me on social media, uh, facebook.com slash conversationforgeneration, or Twitter at conofourgen. And same thing there. Feel free to share these things and get them out there, talk to people about them, engage with me on social media. I'd love to hear from people and get their feedback about this stuff. But I think that because of what I think I'm talking about is important, you know, I'm not saying that I have all the answers or that I'm the most important person doing it, but I think that the topics are important and I think it's good for everyone to be a part of this conversation, which is why I started this, is so that everyone can take part in discussing the things that face the people um, that are alive today, especially my generation who's going to be taking the reins of, you know, you know uh, from the baby boomers and the Gen Xers and will be helping to run the country someday, very soon, really kind of already starting to take the reins. So because the oldest millennials are pushing 40 years old. So really, we have a lot of things that we need to start figuring out having conversations about. And I think that my generation is the toughest one to do that with. And so I think that before I get into the quote of the week, I'd like to discuss why I'm talking about this today. And so I think that language is important. And why is it important? Well, it's a way of conveying meaning. And when it's used instead for masquerading meaning or for, you know, using the language to make it sound good, even though really what it's saying is something vile or evil, you know, it's masquerading as an acceptable way of talking about things, but really we're using euphemisms. I, it's it's a very deceitful thing, and it's it's rampant in our country. And when you have deceit uh, all over, and it's it's a rampant problem, well, then it's hard to really get at truth, obviously. But it's also hard to really know where you and other people stand. And so today, I think too many people just misuse language or twist it to forward an ideology instead of really trying to be honest with others and with themselves about what it is they believe and what it is that they're talking about. And so that's why I'm talking about this today, because I think that we've created a whole new vocabulary. And so, which is why I use George Orwell, uh, a quote by him today to um, tie in that idea of like a news speak, which I think we live in a world with it right now. Um, but it's a little different than what you'd expect from uh George Orwell's vision of a dystopia. And so the quote of the week is, uh, 
again, by George Orwell, he says, political language is designed to make lies sound truthful and murder respectable and give an appearance of solidity to pure wind. And now I will say as a caveat, just to let you know, there is an ellipsis between pure language and the word is. So there's probably other parts of this quote that got left out, but um, I'm having faith in the person who put this up on the internet on brainy quote because I think that they're generally pretty good about their quotes. Um, that this is a that that doesn't lose meaning that it's some you know just trail that he kind of goes down that doesn't that he brings it back in the end of the sentence to what he means. So just throwing that out there. Uh, just want to be honest about that, but. I think that that's very true, and he talks about political language. I think that now we have really cultural language that we have to be aware of, but it is, you know, he says it's designed to make lies sound truthful, and, you know, that's an important thing, that we talk about abortion as abortion instead of, you know, killing your unborn child, because it sounds better. It's a way to you know, or it's terminating a pregnancy, you know, instead of, because child doesn't necessarily mean, you know, baby or a certain, t it's, it's, it means offspring. So, you know, you could, I mean, it, so I think it means actually human offspring technically. So you couldn't like say that a cow's calf is its child necessarily, um, or you could, but so, or a dog's puppy, right? That's not the same thing, because I think it does have to be a human offspring, if I remember correctly. But regardless, you know, we we talk about these things in this way that allows it to... That just kind of gives deference to the ideology that's talking about it. And so, instead of just being clear, we, we aren't clear in the way that we speak, generally. Uh, and that's on all sides of the political aisle, I think from anarchist to socialist, you know, that whole span of people, I think, is very unclear with what they mean, and so, and because, really, if you're just dead hard fast on a political idea, then you're really going to have to do that, because <laughs> politics doesn't stand up to other truths as well, or other types of truth, I shouldn't say other truths, but the other forms of knowledge that you can attain, like, I think it often fails to answer everything philosophically and religiously and ethically. And so when you talk about politics in a vacuum, you do have that issue. And now that since the 60s, the personals become political, our whole culture is, you know, imbued with politics less left and right. Everywhere around you is just political, you know, garbage. <laughs> and it's frustrating. I, I find it very frustrating. But I think the second part here is the other thing that he needs, that you need to... So he says it makes lies sound truthful and murder respectable, which obviously is kind of the same thing, you know, to make something sound truthful and then to also make, you know, evil sound respectful is both kind of the same thing because evil is evil and when you masquerade it as not evil, then... It, and you make it seem respectable, you're kind of doing the same thing. But to give an appearance of solidity to pure wind, and I think that that's something too that we have to recognize is 
it just, you can kind of get fooled by uh, statistics, and we'll talk about that in a minute, to make, to kind of paint a picture of like, here's some facts that point in this direction, and if you spin them the right way, and you kind of show the right charts, you might draw uh, an improper conclusion. And, you know, you can use speech to do that, and that's kind of what the first part is about. But the second part is about giving the appearance of solidity to pure wind. It's really just making you deny your faculties, deny your ability to reason for yourself and to say, you know, no, that's not wind, that's a rock. And and to deny that and to be so in denial of the truth and your senses and your faculties of reason are, that's that's a problem. And so I think a great way to look at this is to talk about uh, Oscar Wilde's importance of being earnest, because I think this is a good way to start the show um, and talking about this idea. And for those of you who don't know, I'm going to give you the short, short synopsis is it's a focus of a guy who's leaving, living a double life and someone catches him in it, asks him why, if his name is Ernest, that he's his uh, cigarette case is inscribed to his their dear Uncle Jack, and so he kind of comes up with this, well, or he kind of admits to someone that, you know, his name's really Jack, he comes here to be earnest and to live this double life, and so the story, he falls in love with a girl in the place that he goes by earnest, basically, and so he has to be dishonest, which is not what the, you know, like the name of the book is E-A-R-N-E-S, so, like, to be an honest or, you know, forthcoming, you know, to be an upright person, right? Um, and his name is Ernest, without the A, like the name, and the lady that he falls in love with loves his name so much that he tries to become uh, christened as Ernest so that that becomes his official name, and so that she'll marry him, and so basically he's trying to make his fake name, his name, to go by a name that means, like, honest and upright, and in no way does he, you know, embody earnest, you know, earnestness, or, or I don't know, he doesn't actually, uh, he's not worthy of the name Ernest with an A uh, at all, and so he's, you know, he's not an earnest man, he just takes the name Ernest, and so we're in a world like that, where Virtue is no longer what you do, say, or, you know, or these, this habit of doing and saying the right thing. It's virtue signaling where you uh, say what people say you should think and, you know, and you adopt that idea. Well, that's not virtue, (laughs) you know, and it's in a world where speaking your truth is true. But when you bring in facts and statistics and citing sources that, you know, and data that can be verified, you know, that's just your opinion. And it's like, well, you got these things kind of flipped, you know, your perspective is, you know, one thing and it kind of helps you inform your opinion. But, you know, if you're bringing in, you know, facts and statistics and everything and your worldview and everything together to create an opinion, you're really positing truth in some way and you can, now you can look at that truth and say, is this, you know, or you're positing, uh, I don't know what the word is off the top of my head right now, but you're positing it as true. And then we can look at it and say whether or not it is true. Uh, and so in other words, I think we just 
go by the name Ernest in our society in a lot of ways, but we're just a face liar. We're just, we're just full of it. And, and I think that at an individual level, this society can make us afraid to speak. We don't know if we should be honest or if we should hide who we are. If it's tough to navigate this because, you know, if you don't agree, if you do think that what people are saying is untrue or, or it's harmful, then, you know, and you don't go along with the virtue signaling, then people label you as a bad person, first and foremost, but also there could be severe repercussions. And, you know, it's, it's tough to navigate this world when there's no guiding light of truth because it's just goalposts that are constantly moving, right? It's, you can't stay in one spot on a topic. You can't stay in one, I mean, you can have an argument and people could, you know, I've had, I've been in this argument where about gender, and we'll talk about this more, where people say that, you know, the sexes are, you know, there's no difference between men and women, but also you should respect transgender people. And it's like, well, you can't have both of those, right? And which is part of why I think that it's been such an issue in the left is, recently is figuring that out. But I think that there's other ones. That's just one that springs to mind. And so when we don't have this, everything seems manipulable. There isn't a guiding light to find that truth um, or to find truth in general, I should say. And so I think what we really have to do at an individual level is to think for ourselves. And because that's all we can do. That's all we can do to protect ourselves from this monster that we've allowed to take over our culture and our daily lives and our politics, you know, this political correctness, which I like to call new speak from, uh, from like, uh, 1984. And so the problem I think that we have is that people who read and research and discuss and verify facts and, you know, really get to the nitty gritty of ideas, those people are afraid to talk about things because if you're nuanced at all, you get caught up in a trap by someone on the left or the right. Like if you have a nuanced view of immigration in any way, then both sides hate you a lot of times, at least on the extremes. And if you have a nuanced view on, I can't, um, like taxes, you know, the libertarians are annoyed with you and so are far left, or, you know, and so are really far left people, you know, the socialists are as well, <laughs> right? Because they want 100% tax rates and the other libertarians are just like, well, tax is theft. And you're like, I get that, but can we have a discussion about what we have in front of us now? And it's like, it kind of sends people crazy. And I know that because I fall in that camp a lot. And so... I think that we have to look for multiple sources, conflicting viewpoints, and try to create a cohesive thought, but, and then encourage people to think in a complicated way, and, you know, just disregard these slogans that we have. That's what's really hurting us a lot, is the fact that people just digress to a slogan instead of really an argument in favor of something, and now maybe there's a lot packed into a slogan that if you unpack it, makes a decent argument. You know, for instance, the idea that taxation is theft, yes, it is. But if you don't walk through that with people, then they just write you off because 
you're shouting an empty slogan that they don't know the background to in their face. And so that's not going to help you. You don't win any arguments. I only think you want to win arguments, but you won't get anyone to think critically based on that because you can't. And so now you can't also get everyone to listen to you to follow through why every single point works and why your slogan makes sense at the end of it. But I think that we have to be sure we have to be aware that those aren't arguments. And that's the thing is like your slogan or those things can be a meme. That's fine, but it's not an argument in and of itself. And so, because you have to have the line of logic and the assumptions there. And I think that if we could encourage people around us to think critically, and if you are someone who does this already, then don't be silent. Don't put yourself in predicaments, but you can give people gentle nudges to kind of open them up, right? And I think that that's what we have to do is instead of just coming in full force with, here's all of the research that I've done on topic A, then instead of that, we should kind of give people nudges like, oh, I don't know about that. You know, here's a little tidbit on that idea and just lean back and let people inquire then maybe, or, you know, interject with a interesting thought about something that, you know, when two people are discussing something that you disagree with and doing it in a very simplistic, like flippant manner of the other side, you know, just oh, the other people are just such idiots, then you can definitely go in and just give a couple, you know, give your two cents and a couple points and just back away and, you know, that's all you have to do to just start getting at people to make them think a little bit differently. You know, if you can kind of answer a couple questions that they have that are open in that conversation, you never know what that might change in someone. They might think those things over and really mull that over and start to wonder more. And that's and that's what you want. You don't need to win right there. You need to make people curious. And so in the culture, I think we've created a new speak culture. And in 1984, in the book, not the year, um, you know, it was government acting as big brother, putting you in a room, torturing you. Today, it's the culture. And I think that that's a problem because there's... Someone did a quote, I think it was on the Survival Podcast, uh, I think Jack Spierko did, he found it, but it said something, and it's, I don't know the quote, word for word, I don't have it in front of me, but they said something like, instead of it being Jack, you know, Big Brother's not going to be Jack Boots and, you know, all of that, it's going to be clowns and distractions, and that's really what it is, is we're just being... I feel like we're having our minds melted by some of the technology in our lives that d doesn't really benefit us. And what it's done is it's made us oblivious to the actual problems that are going on that we could be working on and solving, and we're not doing it. And so I think it's important for us to be aware of that uh, because that's, I think, holding us back from seeing some of the problems in our life is that when we're caught up in Twitter or we're caught up on Instagram or whatever it is, or, you know, the stupid game on your phone, you know, these things just, you know, these big problems don't seem important because I want to get to the next level of Candy Crush. And, you know, 
I'm not knocking it or saying that you can't play these games, but I think we need to be aware of that and try to ensure that we're not being uh, put back, uh, not put back, that we're not allowing it to become a, a sort of tyranny over us. And, you know, we've censored ourselves with political correctness, which, as I like to say, again, is newspeak. And, and it's the mobs on Twitter telling us these things. It's not, you know, some agent in a room torturing us. It's it's the mobs. It's, it's all that. And I think that that's another important thing to remember as well, because where Big Brother's coming from is important because that's how you need to know that if you want to defend against what he's doing and so you know and and I will say one of the biggest uh, things that bugs me is recently they've come out you know with sex and gender and at first you know gender and sex are different things they're really not tied if you're a guy you can kind of be more feminine you know effeminate and or you know, you can be more womanly and less womanly or whatever, and vice versa. If you're a girl, if you're born a woman, you know, you have female anatomy, then you can kind of be more or less manly, like a man. And now, you know, the, uh, and then also at the same time, the feminists are arguing that sex is the same, and these people are trying to argue together on things. And you can't quite say that because transgenderism says that sex is different, and then now they say that uh, both gender and sex are malleable and there's no such thing as biological sex and things are different and if you say otherwise, which a lot of feminists still do say otherwise, that, you know, I am a woman and I have woman anatomy and guys who compete as women in women's sports with male anatomy are, you know, at an unfair advantage, you know, so people kind of call out those biological facts, and now you can't do that, and it's absurd, and it's because they want people to be afraid, and it's, if you haven't ever read the book 1984, this is a spoiler alert, so if you don't want to hear this part here, go for it, but I think this is the most important part of the book, in fact, it is probably the most important part of the book, and it's that the main character, Winston, he is in an area being tortured and he's, the person is saying, you know, you need to say that two plus two is five. And he says, no, I won't. Two plus two is four. And they're going back and forth and he's like, two plus two is five. And he's like, no, I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to give in to that. And eventually... He, you know, he's being tortured. He says, fine, two plus two is five. And he's, and the, the person torturing him says, no, that's not good enough. You have to say two plus two is whatever Big Brother says it is. And it's when he, when he admits that, it's when he admits that the truth is whatever the party says, right? Whatever the culture says, whatever, you know, that's when he loses himself and he just kind of goes back and becomes another like zombie in this world and so I think that that's an important thing and you really see kind of the opposite almost of um, 
1984 in the Lego Movie, which I know that that's a crazy thing to say. Not Lego Movie 2, uh, but Lego Movie 1. That's really, in a large part, like, if Winston had made the other choices. <laughs> because, really, that world that he's in is very similar to a dystopia, you know? And it's really the dystopia that we have today of lots of fun and joking around and all that. And so, I think... I think this is something that our our culture is recognizing, which is good, because we need to. And so what I think is important as well in this is you, it's hard to stand up against the culture because you have to be a part of the culture, really, in our society today to, to live. And it's because you have to function as, you know, in, in economics, you have to, fund, you know, economically, you have to go do exchange with other people and work for people and buy stuff from people. And so you can't just be completely outcast. You can't just be on your own. And we as people are social creatures. So you, there's a sense of us that wants to give in to what the culture is saying more than polit politics. Because I think it's easier, in all honesty, to oppose a political regime. I think it's harder to oppose the prevailing winds of culture at the time because they're so powerful. Because that's something that sweeps you away so easily that you don't even realize it's doing it. It's doing it in your movies and your music and the games that you play and on your phone and even in sports that we watch now are covered with, you know, these messages and it's tough. You have to be well-grounded. That's why I say you have to educate yourself and think in a complicated way so that you're not being led astray. You kind of just, you you hear something and you're like, interesting, and you kind of think it over and you're like, I know a lot of things, uh, you know, discredit this. I know three things off the top of my head that I could do to answer that, and I, so I probably don't have to take that claim that seriously. Um, like the fact that men and women are not different biologically. You're like, uh, nope, that's silly. Um, but there's other ones that you can take, you know, I think that gay marriage is one that is a complicated thing for people to parse out in a liberal society and both sides make it, tried to make it way too easy of a debate and ruined the debate and then really ruined probably marriage. Uh, like it was just the final stab in it after years of it, um, especially after years of, you know, no-fault divorce and, you know, all sorts of other things going on that are wrong as well. And so I think that our culture gives us these messages and we have to just stand in defiance of them. That's all we can do is if at the very least, don't admit it. At the very least, don't take on the language that people give you. That's the thing about the semantics and the and the language is, the language is being molded, the political correct language, I just don't use it. I think it's bull. And so I won't use it because you're already seeding ground when you do that. You're already giving people a way to make you work off their assumptions. And they have no right to do that in a debate or in an argument or in life in general. I mean, you have no right to force me to use your base assumptions on the, around the world or of what the world is like and, to, and the way you understand the world. You have no right to do that. And so the way that people do that, though, in our culture is by controlling the way you speak, saying what you can and cannot say. And, you know, that's why I think 
the idea, the thing with Jordan Peterson was such a, you know, struck such a chord with people is he was saying, I'm not going to give in to these base assumptions, regardless of whether or not I treat uh, an individual transgender person different. And I hope he's like, I'm not going to admit the fact that obviously men and women are different and men cannot become women. He's like, I, I just can't admit that. Now, would I think that there you get again into the weeds when you, about ethics and morality a little bit when you're like, am I just going to blatantly disrespect someone to their face who has this problem? And, you know, I, I don't think I would, and I'd probably just avoid pronouns. Um, this is what I would do. I'd just call them by their name. Whatever their name is, is their name. Fine. That works. And so, but I'm not going to be disrespectful to someone and just go out of my way to, you know, call them the pronoun that they don't like to be called. I'm not going to do that either because I'm just not a jerk. Um, and so, you know, it's just the same as like, I wouldn't go out of my way if you had a prostitute around, if you're talking to someone and trying to have a discussion with them about God or whatever, you're not just going to be like, oh, you whore, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like you wouldn't just rub it in their face that, you know, that you disagree with the thing that they disagree, that you disagree with them on. Right. You wouldn't do that. And so like, that's kind of the way I look at the transgender idea is these people are people who need help. You're not just, you shouldn't just say the thing that obviously cuts deep with them and hurt them. You should really talk to them and try to understand why they are the way they are and do your best to, you know, embody Christ for them. And so, you know, those people aren't the Pharisees. They're, they're, they're people who are hurting, right? That's kind of why I use that, that, ideas because in Jesus' time it was the prostitutes that he reached out to and so I think the other area where we were led astray in large part and this is obviously a weird jump <laughs> I'm gonna admit it but it's in economics and I think this is something that people don't understand very well so they're easily misguided and so and so people are able to manipulate people's impressions on these on economics and the way the economy is going based on how they use statistics on this and you know because people aren't familiar with what the unemployment rate is or what capitalism and socialism actually mean and so I'm going to go through those three as examples but there's so many other ways that you can sort of fudge the uh, statistics to paint whatever picture you want and because there's so many conflicting statistics in an economy and it's so such a big thing to understand that you can't just take boil it down to 10 statistics you can't just boil it down to you know inflation consumer price index and unemployment and you know and those kinds of like basic things that we talk about all the time on tv you know those are some good indicators to look at but you have to look at them all together and you have to look at them with the picture as a whole and see what it's really telling you and so I think that if you don't know what these metrics mean, you can be easily misguided. And I'll give you an example here. So unemployment, this is um, a statistic, obviously, that tells you how many people are at, you know, what percentage of people who are looking for jobs um, don't have jobs. So the big caveat there is people who are looking for jobs. So this does not include retired people, does not include um, teenagers who aren't looking for jobs, you know, 14 year old kids, right. Who are probably able-bodied enough to go sling newspapers or whatever, 
you know, work dishwasher, right? They can do those things, you know, so they're able to work. Or, and then also people who just left the workforce. So people on welfare who are not looking for a job are not included in unemployment numbers. So that's a fun reason why you can lower the unemployment two ways. Number one, you can increase jobs and keep the same number of people in the workforce. So if there's a hundred people in the workforce and you know, 10 of them don't have jobs. I add five jobs. The unemployment rate, you know, was 10 out of a hundred. So it's 10%. I give five more people jobs, right? We get some new jobs in now it's 5%. So I cut the unemployment rate. The other way you can do it is you can say, uh, the, there's a hundred people who are unemployed and I put, you know, 20 of them retire and the other 30 I put on welfare. And so, and before that there were, again, uh, let's say 20 people, um, without jobs, right? And actually, I mean, there were 30 people without jobs. Let's say that because that's how many people we put on welfare. Those are the 30 people who didn't have jobs. So we had a huge unemployment rate of 30%. And then we take those 30 those 30 people, put them on unemployment. They're no longer in the workforce. We take 20 people retire and, you know, and um, so they're out of the workforce. So now we only have 50 people in the workforce. Let's say even three people lost their job out of those people, out of those 50 who remain. Well, you only have a 6% unemployment rate at that point, right? Because you cut the unemployment rate from 30% to 6% by simply just giving a bunch of people welfare. And now half the people there have, you know, that those 50 people have to support the hundred people in the population because they're the ones paying for the welfare. They're the ones working for wages, right? So they're paying for the social security for the retired people and they're paying for the, uh, the welfare of the, unemployed people. And that's really what we've seen in our economy is, and that's why it's, it's, it's such a problem. I think when unemployment is used as a benchmark, because really that could mean that we're just burdening the American worker <laughs> more and more and more. That's really what it could be because in my first scenario, that was great, right? We had a few extra people, you brought in five jobs and five new people had jobs. And so there's 95% of the people in the country, you know, in this made a population working instead of 90%. That's great. But in the second scenario, we went from, you know, 70 people supporting 30 people to, you know, 47 people supporting 50 people because the three technically weren't necessarily getting benefits. And well, they probably were getting like a small, you know, unemployment in between while they look sort of thing. But and that's the problem with our country in a lot of ways is you can fudge that statistic and now it makes the economy sound like it's booming. And then you're like, well, why am I breaking my back and still feel like I'm not getting ahead? Well, the, the main reason is that you're supporting more and more people sometimes when that happens. You know, this was especially true under Obama. The labor force shrunk and that's why job you know numbers look better. I haven't looked at what it is under Trump. Um... But I, so I, I can't tell you, honestly, I, 
I just remember discussing this in my economics classes early on um, of how the labor, basically that's, I mean, I had an economics professor saying this is how it's happening. You know, he's like, I can show you the job numbers. And we looked at the job numbers and sure enough, there were just fewer people in the labor force every time that the job numbers were looking better or not every time, but a lot of the times um, he was creating jobs. You know, there are jobs being created as well, obviously. So the other word is capitalism. And I don't want to rant too much on this. You can talk about or you can listen to my podcast a few weeks ago about capitalism versus socialism. And but the thing is, this isn't a, a system where just like it the rich get richer, the poor get poorer, and it creates class divides. That's not what it's defined as, even though people would like to make you think that. The real definition is it's a system where uh, property rights are preserved and people are uh, allowed, or people own the fruits of their labor, basically. And like I said, that if you agree to enter into a contract to work for wages instead, well, those wages become the fruits of your labor, not the doohickey you're making and selling, right? That's not it. If you're working for someone else, you surrender that to the person who uh, who went out and ventured on that. And that's part of the deal. And that's why people get mad is in the last 200 years or so <clears throat> of the Industrial Revolution, we've had to centralize capital a lot. So instead of people kind of going out in business for themselves a lot of times, especially, you know, early America, you know, you kind of had the people who go set up a town and you'd have a a guy who learns how to be a barber and a guy who learns how to do this. And, you know, they kind of all learn their own trades and they have their own setup. Or maybe you apprentice with someone until you're able to take over it or go out and do it yourself. Right. And you kind of work for yourself. You didn't have a boss or necessarily you're any of those things, you know. And so it was a lot different. And then when the Industrial Revolution came around, we had to hit economies of scale. We had to centralize capital and we had to create factories and all these things in order to make, you know, these things profitable. <clears throat> because that's what you need in a capitalist society is you need to get a return on your investment. And so the the form that capitalism had to take on during the Industrial Revolution created some of the things that we talk about today as inherent to capitalism, but that's not the case. And I have another uh, episode that I'll link to is that... Or, I think it was a podcast episode um, that talked about the decentralization of capital. And I think that it's coming. I think that we're going to see a change there um, because I think that we're seeing a shift where people are decentralizing where they shop. We don't all go shop at the same place. You know, we don't all go to Walmart anymore. I think that people are looking for these niches and these things. And you can find small capital investment from a few individuals that aren't super well off and a little bit of sweat equity can create a good business venture and an cool little e-commerce thing and you know and you have the you know it's almost it's very cheap to ship all over the country and all over the world really relatively at least and so i think that things are changing there <clears throat> and then last is socialism socialism isn't just sharing <laughs> because sharing is done freely and voluntarily by people not by government coercion and so socialism actually requires that the government nationalizes industries, forces redistribution of wealth, and sets controls on prices and basically in general mandates what the economy looks like. And that can take a little bit different forms, you know, but really it's the same thing wherever it's done. And so it's just taking away the choice 
and of people in a, in a market to decide what they want to pay for something or what they want to sell something for or all of those things. And it's ridiculous. Um, I was on Twitter, which I know I just railed against it yesterday or earlier on the podcast, I mean, and I was on Twitter yesterday and I saw a thing that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, or Cortez, sorry, um, was talking about the price of a croissant and she's like, you're... I can't, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it, Ben Shapiro replied, and it was something along the lines of, you know, croissants are $7, and so we need to pay people $15, and Ben's like, yeah, and you pay people $15, and then a croissant, the price of a croissant goes to $9, and then Alexander Ocasio-Cortez is like, yeah, now we need to pay people $17, we need to raise, the price of croissants went up $2, we need to raise wages, $2, and it's like, it creates this cycle when you do that. When you do mandate people to pay or to earn certain things, it messes up the economy. And so, I think it's important to recognize that and to uh, and to be wary of that. So, that I think is the end of the conversation for today. I hope you enjoyed this and some of the ways that people fudge language in order to, you know, push an ideology. And I think that if you have further questions on this or if you'd like to hear from me, go to conversationrightgeneration.com slash contact and drop a line. Go to facebook.com slash conversationrightgeneration. Reach out to me there or Twitter at conofourgen. The podcast will be up on all those channels. And also, I think I forgot to mention at the beginning of the show, but if you go to iTunes and search Conversation Right Generation, you can subscribe. Give me a good rating there. That helps. Um, if you don't like the show, you can still follow it and see if you start to like it. And just don't give me a bad rating, please. That, that would help. <laughs> um, you know, and so thank you guys again for listening to another episode of The Conversation. I hope this was an important thing for you to hear, and I hope this was something that really gave you a lot of value. And um, and I'd love to hear from you on ways to make it better, ways to change up what I'm doing here and there, and to talk about different topics that are important to you guys. So let me know if you have any ideas. And thank you for listening to another episode of The Conversation for a Generation. Let's get the dialogue going. I'll talk to you next week.